from Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world, it's the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. On this episode, we complete our look back at the 1980s theatrical releases for Miramax Films, and for the final time, a reminder that we are not celebrating Bob and Harvey Weinstein, but reminiscing about the movies they had no involvement in making. We cannot talk about cinema in the 1980s without talking about Miramax, and I really wanted to get it out of the way, once and for all. As we left Part 4, Miramax was on its way to winning its first Academy Award for Billy August's Pella the Conqueror, the Scandinavian film that would be the second film in a row from Denmark that would win for Best Foreign Language Film. In fact, the first two films Miramax would release in 1989, the Australian film Warm Nights on a Slow-Moving Train, and the Anthony Perkins slasher film Edge of Sanity would not arrive in theaters until the Friday after the Academy Awards ceremony that year, which was being held on the last Wednesday in March. Warm Nights on a Slow-Moving Train stars Wendy Hughes, the talented Australian actress who sadly is best remembered today as Lieutenant Commander Nella Darren, one of Captain Jean-Luc Picard's few love interests on a 1993 episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. She plays Jenny, a prostitute working a weekend train to Sydney, who is seduced by a man on the train, unaware that he plans on tricking her to kill someone for him. Colin Friels, another great Aussie actor who unfortunately is best known for playing the corrupt head of Strack Industries in Sam Raimi's Darkman, plays the unnamed man who will do anything to get what he wants. Director Bob Ellis and his co-screenwriter Denny Lawrence came up with the idea for the film while they themselves were traveling on a weekend train to Sydney, with the idea that each client the call girl met on the train would represent some part of an Australian male. Funding the $2.5 million Australian film was really simple, provided they cast Hughes in the lead role. Ellis and Lawrence weren't against Hughes as an actress. Any film would be lucky to have her as the lead. They just felt that she didn't have the right kind of sex appeal for this specific character. Miramax would open the film in six theaters, including the Cineplex Beverly Center in Los Angeles and the Fashion Village 8 in Orlando, on March 31st. There were two versions of the movie prepared for release, one with a running time of 130 minutes, the other 91 minutes. Miramax would go with the 91-minute version of the film for the American release, and most of the critics would note how clunky and confusing the film felt, although one critic for The Village Voice would have some kind words for Miss Hughes's performance. Whether it was because moviegoers were too busy seeing the winners of the just-announced Academy Awards, including Best Picture winner Rain Man, or because the weekend was also the opening weekend of the new Major League Baseball season, or just churned off by the reviews, Attendance at the theaters playing Warm Nights on a Slow-Moving Train was as empty as a train dining car at three in the morning. The Beverly Center alone would account for a third of the movie's opening weekend gross of $19,268. After a second weekend at the same six theaters pocketing just $14,382, this train stalled out, never to arrive at another station. Miramax's other March 31st release, Edge of Sanity, is notable for two things and only two things. It would be the first film Miramax would release under their genre specialty label, Millimeter Films, which would eventually evolve into Dimension Films in the next decade, and it would be the final feature film to star Anthony Perkins before his passing in 1992. 
The film is yet another retelling of the classic 1886 Robert Louis Stevenson story, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, with the bonus story twist that Hyde was actually Jack the Ripper. As Jekyll, Perkins looks exactly as you'd expect a mid-50s Norman Bates to look. As Hyde, Perkins is made up to look like he's a backup keyboardist for the first Nine Inch Nails tour. Head Like a Hole would have been a pretty appropriate song for the end credits, had the song, or Pretty Hate Machine, been released by that time, with its lyrics about bowing down before the one you serve and getting what you deserve. Edge of Sanity would open in Atlanta and Indianapolis on March 31st, and like so many other Miramax releases in the 1980s, they did not initially announce any grosses for the film. That is until the fourth weekend of release, when the film's theater count had fallen to just six screens, down from the previous week's previously unannounced 35, grossing just $9,832. Miramax would not release grosses for the film again, and their final total was just $102,219. Now, when I started this series, I said that none of the films Miramax released in the 1980s were made by Miramax, but this next film would be the closest they would get during the decade. In July 1961, John Profumo was the Secretary of State for War in the conservative government of British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan when the married Profumo began a sexual relationship with a 19-year-old model named Christine Keeler. The affair was very short-lived, either ending, depending on the source, in August 1961 or December 1961. But unbeknownst to Profumo, Keeler was also having an affair with the Evgeny Ivanov, a senior naval attaché at the Soviet embassy at the same time. No one was the wiser on any of this until December of 1962, when a shooting incident involving two other men Keeler had been involved with led the press to start looking into her life. While it was never proven that his affair with Keeler was responsible for any breaches of national security, John Perfuma was forced to resign from his position in June 1963 and the scandal would take down most of the Tory government with him. Prime Minister Macmillan would resign due to health reasons in October of 1963, and the Labour Party would take control of the British government when the next elections were held in October of 1964. The movie Scandal was originally planned in the mid-1980s as a three-part, five-hour miniseries by Australian screenwriter Michael Thomas and American music producer-turned-movie producer Joe Boyd. The BBC would commit to finance a two-part, three-hour miniseries, until someone at the network found an old memo from the time of the Profumo scandal that forbade them from making any productions about it. Channel 4, which had been producing quality shows and movies for several years since their start in 1982, was also approached, but they rejected the series on the grounds of haste. Palace Pictures, a British production company who had already produced three films for Neil Jordan, including Mona Lisa, was willing to finance the script provided it could be whittled down to a two-hour movie. Originally budgeted at 3.2 million British pounds, the costs would rise as they started the casting process. John Hurt, twice Oscar-nominated for his roles in Midnight Express and The Elephant Man, would sign on to play Stephen Ward, a British osteopath who acted as Christine Keeler's well, pimp, for lack of a better word. Ian McKellen, a respected actor on British stages and screens, but still years away from finding mainstream global success in the 
X-Men movies, would sign on to play John Profumo. And Joanne Whaley, who had filmed the yet-to-be-released-at-that-time Willow with her soon-to-be husband Val Kilmer, would get her first starring role as Keeler. Bridget Fonda, who was quickly making a name for herself in the film world after being featured in Aria, would play Mandy Rice Davies, the best friend and co-worker of Keeler's. To save money, Powell's Pictures would sign 30-year-old Scottish filmmaker Michael Caton Jones to direct, after seeing a short film he had made called The Riveter. But even with the neophyte feature filmmaker, Powell still needed about $2.35 million to be able to fully finance the film themselves, and they knew exactly who to go to. Stephen Woolley, the co-founder of Palace Pictures and the main producer on the film, would fly from London to New York City to personally pitch Bob and Harvey Weinstein. Woolley felt that of all the independent distributors in America, they would be the ones most attracted to the sexual and controversial nature of the story. A day later, Woolley was back on a plane to London. The Weinsteins had agreed to purchase the American distribution rights to Scandal for $2.35 million. The film would spend two months shooting in the London area throughout the summer of 1988. Christine Keeler had no interest in the film and refused to meet the now Joanne Whaley Kilmer to talk about the affair. But Mandy Rice Davies was more than happy to talk to Bridget Fonda about her life. Although the meetings between the two women were so secret at the time, they would not come out until Woolley eulogized Rice Davies after her 2014 death. Although Harvey and Bob would be given co-executive producer credits on the film, Miramax was not a production company on the film. This, however, did not stop Harvey from flying to London multiple times, usually when he was made aware of some sexy scene that was going to shoot the following days, to try to insinuate himself into the film's making. At one point, Stephen Woolley decided to take a weekend off from the production and actually did put Harvey in charge. That weekend's shoot would include a skinny-dipping scene featuring the Christine Keeler character. But when Joanne Willie Kilmer learned that Harvey was going to be there, she told the director that she could not do the nudity in the scene. Her new husband was objecting to it, she told them. Harvey, not skipping a beat, found a look-alike for the actress who would be willing to bear all as a body double. And the scene would begin shooting a few hours later. Whaley Kilmer watched the shoot from just behind the camera and stopped the shoot a few minutes later. She was not happy that the body double's posterior was noticeably larger than her own, and she didn't want audiences to think she had that much junk in her trunk. The body double was paid off for her day, and Whaley Kilmer finished the rest of the scene herself. Michael Caton Jones and his editing team would work on shaping the film throughout the fall, and he would screen his first edit of the film for Palace Pictures and the Weinsteins in November 1988. And while Harvey was very happy with the cut, he still asked for the production team for a different edit for American audiences, noting that most Americans had no idea who Profumer or Keeler or Rice Davies were, and that Americans would need to understand the story more right out of the first frame. Caton Jones didn't want to cut a single frame, but he would work with Harvey to build an American-friendly cut. When he was in London in November of 1988, Harvey would meet with the producers of another British film that was in pre-production at the time that would become another important film to the growth of the company, but we're not quite at that part of the story yet. We'll circle around to that film soon. One of the things Harvey was most looking forward to in 1989 was the expected battle with the MPA ratings board over Scandal. Ever since he had seen the brouhaha 
over Angelheart's X rating two years earlier, he had been looking for a similar battle. He thought he had it with Arya in 1988, but he knew he definitely had it now. And he'd be right. In early March, just a few weeks before the film's planned April 21st opening day, the MPAA slapped an X rating on Scandal. The MPAA usually does not tell filmmakers or distributors what needs to be cut in order to avoid accusations of actual censorship. But according to Harvey, they told him exactly what needed to be cut in order to get the R rating. A two-second shot during an orgy scene where it appears two background characters are having unsimulated sex. So what did Harvey do? He spent weeks complaining to the press about MPAA censorship, generating millions of dollars in free publicity for the film, all while already having a close-up shot of Joanne Whaley Kilmer's Christine Keeler watching the orgy but not participating in it, ready to replace the objectionable shot. A few weeks later, Merrimack screened the quote-unquote edited film to the MPAA and secured the R rating, and the film would open on 94 screens, including 28 each in the New York and Los Angeles metro regions, on April 28th. And while the reviews for the film were mostly great, audiences were drawn to the film for the Miramax manufactured controversy, as well as the key art for the film, a picture of a potentially naked Joanne Willie Kilmer sitting backwards in a chair, a mimic of a very famous photo Christine Keeler herself took to promote a movie about the Profumo affair she appeared in a few years after the event. I'll have a picture of both the Scandal poster and the Christine Keeler photo on this episode's page at the80smoviepodcast.com. Five other movies would open that weekend, including the James Belushi comedy Canine and the Kevin Bacon drama Criminal Law. And Scandal, with $658,000 worth of ticket sales, would have the second best per screen average of the five new openers, just a few hundred dollars below the new Holly Hunter movie Miss Firecracker, which only opened on six screens. In its second weekend, Scandal would expand its run to 214 playdates and make its debut in the national top 10, coming in 10th place with $981,000. That would be more than the second week of the Patrick Dempsey rom-com movie Loverboy, even though Loverboy was playing on five times as many screens. And weekend number three, Scandal would have its best overall gross and top 10 placement coming in seventh, with $1.22 million from 346 screens. Scandal would start to slowly fade away after that, falling back out of the top and in its sixth week. But Miramax widely kept the screen count under 375 for the entire run because Scandal was not going to play well in all areas of the country. After nearly five months in theaters, Miramax would have its biggest film to date. Scandal would gross $8.8 million. The second release from Millimeter Films was The Return of the Swamp Thing. And if you needed a reason why the 1980s were not a good time for comic book movies, here you are. The Return of the Swamp Thing took most of what made the character interesting in his comic series, and most of what was good from the 1982 Wes Craven adaptation, and decided, hey, you know what would bring the kids in? Camp. Camp unseen in a comic book adaptation since the 1960s Batman series. They loved it then. They're going to love it now. Except they didn't love it now. Heather Locklear, between her stints on T.J. Hooker in Melrose Place, plays the stepdaughter of Louis Jordan's evil Dr. Arcane from the first film, 
who heads down to the Florida swamps to confront dear old once-presumed-dead stepdad. He, in turn, kidnaps his stepdaughter and decides to do some genetic experiments on her until she is rescued by Swamp Thing, one of Dr. Arcane's former co-workers who got turned into the gooey anti-hero in the first movie. The film co-stars Sarah Douglas from Superman 1 and 2 as Dr. Arcane's assistant, Dick Durock, reprising his role as Swamp Thing from the first film, and 1980s B-movie goddess Monique Gabrielle as Miss Poinsetta. For director Jim Wynorski, this was his sixth movie as director, and at $3 million, one of the highest-budgeted movies he would ever make. He's directed 107 movies since 1984, most of them low-budget direct-to-video movies with titles like The Bear Wench Project and Alabama Jones and The Busty Crusade, although he does have one genuine horror classic under his belt, the 1986 sci-fi-tinged Chopping Mall with Kelly Maroney and Barbara Crampton. Wynorski suggested in a late 1990s DVD commentary for the film that he didn't particularly enjoy making the film, and he had a difficult time directing Louis Jordan, to the point that outside of calling action and cut, the two did not speak to each other by the end of the shoot. The Return of the Swamp Thing would open in 123 theaters in the United States on May 12th, including 28 in the New York City metro region, 26 in the Los Angeles area, 15 in Detroit, and a handful of theaters in Phoenix and San Francisco. And strangely, the newspaper ads would include an actual positive quote from none other than Roger Ebert, who said on the Siskel and Ebert show that he enjoyed himself and it was good to have Swamp Thing back. Siskel would not reciprocate his balcony partner's thumbs up. But Siskel was about the only person who was positive on the return of Swamp Thing, and that box office would suffer. In its first three days, the film would gross just $119,200. And after a couple more dismal weeks in theaters, the return of the Swamp Thing would be pulled from distribution with a final gross of just $275,000. Fun fact, the return of the Swamp Thing was produced by Michael E. Uslan, whose next production, another adaptation of a DC Comics character, would arrive in theaters not six weeks later and become the biggest film of the summer. In fact, Uslan has been a producer or executive producer on every Batman-related movie and television show since 1989, from Tim Burton to Christopher Nolan to Zack Snyder to Matt Reeves, and from Lego movies to Joker. He also, because of his ownership of the movie rights to Swamp Thing, got the movie screen rights, but not the television screen rights, to John Constantine. Miramax didn't have too much time worrying about the return of Swamp Thing's release as it was happening while the brothers Weinstein were at the 1989 Cannes Film Festival. They had two primary goals at Cannes that year. One, to buy American distribution rights to any movie that would increase their standing in the cinematic worldview, which they would achieve by picking up an Italian dramedy called, at the time, New Paradise Cinema, which was competing for the Palme d'Or with a Miramax pickup from Sundance back in January. And two, to promote that very film, which did end up winning the Palme d'Or. Ever since he was a kid, Steven Soderbergh wanted to be a filmmaker. Growing up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana in the late 1970s, he would enroll himself in the LSU film animation class, even though he was only 15 and not yet a high school graduate. After graduating high school, he decided to move to Hollywood to break into the film industry. Renting an above-garage room from Stephen Gyllenhaal, the filmmaker best known as the father of Jake and Maggie, 
But after a few freelance editing jobs, Soderbergh packed up his things and headed home for Baton Rouge. Someone at Atco Records saw one of Soderbergh's short films and hired him to direct a concert movie for one of their biggest bands at the time, Yes, who was enjoying a major comeback thanks to their 1983 triple platinum selling album, 90125. The concert film, called 9021 Live, would premiere on MTV in late 1985 and it would be nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Long-Form Music Video. Soderbergh would use the money he earned from that project, $7,500, to make Winston a 12-minute black-and-white short about sexual deception that he would, over the course of an eight-day driving trip from Baton Rouge to Los Angeles, expand to a full-length screenplay that he would call Sex, Lies, and Videotape. In later years, Soderbergh would admit that part of the story is autobiographical, but not the part you might think. Instead of the lead Graham, an impotent but still sexually perverse late 20-something who likes to tape women talking about their sexual fantasies for his own pleasure later, Soderbergh based the husband John, the unsophisticated lawyer who cheats on his wife with her sister, on himself. Although there would be a little bit of Graham that borrows from the filmmaker. Like his lead character, Soderbergh did sell off most of his possessions and hit the road to live a different life. When he finished the script, he sent it out into the wilds of Hollywood. Morgan Mason, the son of actor James Mason and the husband of Go-Go's lead singer Belinda Carlisle, would read it and sign on as an executive producer. Soderbergh had wanted to shoot the film in black and white like he had with the Winston short that led to the creation of the screenplay, but he and Mason had trouble getting anyone to commit to the project, even with only a projected budget of $200,000. For a hot moment, it looked like Universal might sign on to make the film, but they would eventually pass. Robert Neumeyer, who had left his job as vice president of production and acquisitions at Columbia Pictures to start his own production company, signed on as a producer as well, and helped to convince Soderbergh to shoot the film in color and cast some name actors in the leading role. Once Soderbergh acquiesced, Richard Branson's Virgin Vision agreed to put up $540,000 of the newly budgeted $1.2 million film, while RCA Columbia Home Video would put up the remaining $660,000. Soderbergh and his casting agent, Deborah Aquila, would begin their casting search in New York City, where they would meet with, amongst others, Andy McDowell, who had already starred in two major Hollywood pictures, 1984's Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, and 1985's St. Elmo's Fire, but was still considered more of a top model than an actress. They'd also meet with Laura San Giacomo, who had recently graduated from the Carnegie Mellon School of Drama in Pittsburgh, and where she would be making her feature debut. Moving on to Los Angeles, Soderbergh and Aquila would cast James Spader, who had made a name for himself as a mostly bad guy in 80s teen movies like Pretty in Pink and Less Than Zero, but had never been the lead in a drama like this. At Spader's suggestion, the pair would meet with Peter Gallagher, who was supposed to become a star nearly a decade earlier from his starring role in Taylor Hackford's The Idolmaker, but had mostly been playing supporting roles in television shows and movies for most of the decade. In order to keep the budget down, Soderbergh, the producers, cinematographer Walt Lloyd, and the four main cast members agreed to get paid their guilt minimums in exchange for a 50-50 profit participation split with RCA Columbia 
once they had recouped their costs on the film. The production would spend a week in rehearsals in Baton Rouge before the 30-day shoot began on August 1, 1988. On most days, the shoot was unbearable for many as the temperatures would reach as high as 110 degrees outside. But there were a couple days lost to what cinematographer Lloyd said was biblical rains. But the shoot completed as scheduled, and Soderbergh got to the task of editing right away. He knew he only had about eight weeks to get a cut ready if he was going to be submitting it to the 1989 U.S. Film Festival, now better known as Sundance. He did get a temporary cut of the film ready for submission with a not-quite-final sound mix, and the film was accepted to the festival. It would make its world premiere on January 25, 1989 in Park City, Utah. And as soon as that first screening was completed, the bids from distributors came rolling in. Larry Estes, the head of RCA Columbia Home Video, would field more than a dozen submissions before the end of the night. But only one distributor was ready to make a deal, right then and there. Bob Weinstein wasn't totally sold on the film, but he loved the ending. And he loved that the word sex not only was in the title, but led the title. He knew that the title alone would sell the movie. Harvey, who was still in New York the next morning, called Estes to make an appointment to meet in 24 hours. When he and Estes met, he brought with him three poster mock-ups the marketing department had prepared and told Estes that he wasn't going back to New York until he had a contract signed and vowed to be any other deal offered by $100,000. Island Pictures, who had made their name releasing movies like Stop Making Sense, Kiss of the Spider Woman, The Trip to Bountiful, and She's Gotta Have It, offered $1 million for the distribution rights, plus a 30% distribution fee and a guaranteed $1 million prints in advertising budget. Estes called Harvey up and told him what it would take to make the deal. $1.1 million for distribution rights, which needed to be paid up front, a $1 million prints in advertising budget to be put in escrow upon the signing of the contract until the film was released, a 30% distribution fee, no cutting of the film whatsoever once Soderbergh turned in his final cut. They would need to provide financial information for the film's costs and returns once a month because of the profit participation contracts, and the Weinsteins would have to hire Ira Deutschman, who had spent nearly 15 years in the independent film world doing marketing for Cinema 5, co-founding United Artists Classics, and Cinecom Pictures before opening his own company to act as a producer's rep and marketeer. And the Weinsteins would not only have to do exactly what Deutschmann said, they would have to pay for his services too. Miramax and Estes signed the contract a few weeks later. The first move Miramax would make would to get Soderbergh's final cut of the film entered in the Cannes Film Festival, where it would be accepted to compete in the main competition, which you kind of already know happened because that's what I led with. The film did win the Palme d'Or, and Spader would be awarded the festival's award for Best Actor. It was very rare at the time, and really still is, for any film to be awarded more than one prize at the Cannes Film Festival, so winning two was really a coup for the film and for Miramax, especially when many critics attending the festival felt Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing was the better film. In March, Miramax expected the film to make around 5 or $10 million, which would net the company a small profit on the film. After Khan, they were hoping for a $15 million gross. 
they never expected what would happen next. On August 4th, Sex, Lies, and Videotape would open on four screens. At the Cinema Studio in New York City and at the AMC Century 14, the Cineplex Beverly Center 13, and the Man Westwood 4 in Los Angeles. Three prime theaters and the best they could do in what was then one of the most competitive zones in all of America. Remember, we're still in the summer 1989 movie season, filled with hits like Batman, Dead Poet Society, Ghostbusters 2, Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Lethal Weapon 2, Parenthood, Turner and Hooch, and When Harry Met Sally. An independent distributor even getting one screen at the least attractive theater in Westwood was a major get. And despite the fact that this movie wasn't really a summertime movie per se, the film would gross an incredible $156,000 in its first weekend from just these four theaters. Its $40,000 per screen average would be five times higher than the next closest film, Parenthood. In its second weekend, the film would expand to 28 theaters and would bring in over $600,000 in ticket sales. Its per-screen average of $21,527 was nearly triple its closest competitor, Parenthood again. The company would keep spending small as it slowly expanded the film each successive week. 40 theaters in the third week and 101 in its fourth. The numbers held strong and its fifth week, Labor Day weekend, the film would have its first big expansion, playing in 347 theaters. The film would enter the top 10 for the first time, despite playing on 500 to 1,500 fewer screens than the other films in the top 10. In its ninth weekend, the film would expand to its biggest screen count, 534, before slowly drawing down as the other major Oscar contenders started their theatrical runs. The film would continue to play through the Oscar season of 1989, and when it finally left theaters in May 1989, the final gross would be an astounding $24.7 million. Now, remember a few moments ago when I said that Miramax needed to provide financial statements every month for the profit participation contracts of Soderbergh, the producers, the cinematographer, and the Ford lead actors? The film was so profitable for everyone so quickly that RCA Columbia made its first profit participation payouts to them on October 17th, barely 10 weeks after the film's opening. That same week, Soderbergh also made what was at the time the largest deal with a book publisher for the writer-director's annotated version of the screenplay, which would also include his notes created during the creation of the film. That $75,000 deal would be more than what he got paid to make the movie as the writer and director and the editor, of course not counting the profit participation checks. During the awards season, Sex, Lies, and Videotape was considered to be one of the Oscar frontrunners for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and at least two acting nominations. The film would be nominated for Best Picture, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actress by the Golden Globes, and it would win the Spirit Awards for Best Picture, Best Director, Andy McDowell for Best Actress, and Laura San Giacomo for Best Supporting Actress. But when the Academy Award nominations were announced, the film would only receive one nomination for Best Original Screenplay. The same total and category as Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, which many people also felt had a chance for Best Picture and Best Director nominations. Both films would lose out to Tom Shulman's screenplay for Dead Poet Society. The success of Sex, Lies, and Videotape would launch Steven Soderbergh into one of the 
quirkiest Hollywood careers ever seen, including becoming the first and only director to ever be nominated twice for Best Director in the same year by the Motion Picture Academy, the Golden Globes, and the Director's Guild of America. This happened in 2001 when he directed both Aaron Brockovich and Traffic. He would win the Oscar for directing the later film. Lost in the excitement of Sex, Lies, and Videotape was The Little Thief, a French movie that had the unfortunate start as the screenplay Francois Truffaut was working on when he passed away in 1984 at the age of just 52. Directed by Claude Miller, whose principal mentor was Truffaut, The Little Thief starred 17-year-old Charlotte Gainsbourg as Janine, a young woman in post-World War II France who commits a series of larcenies to support her dream of becoming wealthy. The film was a modest success in France when it opened in December 1988, but its American release date of August 25, 1989 had been set months in advance. So when it was obvious Sex, Lies, and Videotape was going to be a bigger hit than originally anticipated, it was too late for Miramax to pause the release. Opening at the Lincoln Plaza Cinemas in New York City and buoyed by favorable reviews from every major critic in town, Little Thief would see $39,931 worth of ticket sales in its first seven days, setting a news house record for the theater for that year. And in its second week, the gross would only drop $47 for the entire week. And when it opened at the Royal Theater in West Los Angeles, its opening weekend gross there of $30,654 would also set a new house record for the year. The film would expand slowly but surely over the next several weeks, often in single-screen playdates in major markets. But it would never play on more than 24 screens in any given week. And after four months in theaters, The Little Thief, the last movie created by one of the greatest film writers the world had ever seen, would only gross $1.056 million in the United States. The next three releases from Miramax were all sent out under the Millimeter Films banner. The first, a supernatural erotic drama called The Girl in a Swing, was about an English antiques dealer who travels to Copenhagen, where he meets and falls in love with a mysterious German-born secretary who he marries, only to discover a darker side to his new bride. Rupert Fraser, who had played Christian Bale's dad in Steven Spielberg's Empire of the Sun, plays the antique dealer, while Meg Tilly, the mysterious new bride. Filmed over a five-week schedule in London and Copenhagen during May and June of 1988, some online sources said the film first opened somewhere in California in December 1988, but I cannot find a single theater, not only in California, but anywhere in the United States that played the film before its September 29th. 1989 opening date. Roger Ebert didn't like the film and wished Meg Tilly's genuinely original performance was in a better film. Opening in 26 theaters, including six theaters each in New York City and Los Angeles, and spurred on by an intriguing key art for the film that featured a presumed naked Tilly on a swing looking seductively at the camera, while a notice under her warns that no one under 18 will be admitted to the theater. The Girl in a Swing would gross $102,000, good enough for 35th place nationally that week. And that's about the best it would do. The film would limp along, moving from market to market to market over the course of the next three months. And when its theatrical run was completed, it could only manage about $747,000 worth of ticket sales. 
And now we'll quickly burn through the next two millimeters film releases, which came out a week apart from each other and didn't amount to much. Animal Behavior was a rather unfunny comedy featuring some very good actors who probably signed on for a very different movie than the one that came to be. Karen Allen, Miss Marion Ravenwood herself, stars as Alex, a biologist who, like Dr. Jane Goodall, develops a new way to communicate with chimpanzees via sign language. Armand Asante plays a cellist who pursues the good doctor, and Holly Hunter plays the cellist's neighbor, who Alex mistakes for his wife. Animal Behavior was filmed in 1984, and 1985, and 1987, and 1988. The initial production was directed by Jenny Bowen with the assistance of Robert Redford and the Sundance Institute, thanks to her debut film, 1981 Street Music, featuring Elizabeth Daly. It's unknown why Bowen and her cinematographer husband Richard Bowen left the project, but when filming resumed again and again and again, those scenes were directed by the film's producer, Kel Rasmussen. Because Bowen was not a member of the WGA at the time, she was not able to petition the Guild for the use of the Alan Smithy pseudonym, a process that is automatically triggered whenever directors let go of a project and filming continues with its producer taking the reins as director. But she was able to get the production to use a pseudonym anyway for the director's credit, H. Ann Riley, while also giving Richard Bowen a pseudonym of his own for his cinematography work on the film, David Spelvin. Opening on 24 screens on October 27th, Animal Behavior would come in 50th place in its opening weekend, grossing just $20,361. The New York film critics ripped the film apart, and there would not be a second weekend for the film. The following Friday, November 3rd, saw the release of The Stepfather 2, a rushed-together sequel to 1987's The Stepfather, which itself wasn't a big hit in theaters, but found a very quick and receptive audience on cable. Despite dying at the end of the first film, Terry O'Quinn's Jerry is somehow still alive and institutionalized in northern Washington state. He escapes and heads down to Los Angeles, where he assumes the identity of a recently deceased publisher named Gene Clifford, but instead passes himself off as a psychiatrist. Jerry, now Gene, begins to court his neighbor Carol, and the whole crazy story plays out again. Meg Foster plays the neighbor Carol, while Jonathan Brandis is her son. Director Jeff Burr had made a name for himself with his 1987 horror anthology film From a Whisper to a Scream, featuring Vincent Price, Clue Gulliger, and Terry Kaiser. And from all accounts, he had a very smooth shooting process with this film. The trouble began when he turned in his cut to the producers. The producers were happy with the film, but when they sent it to Miramax, the American distributors, Miramax was rather unhappy with the almost bloodless slasher film. They demanded reshoots, which Burr and O'Quinn refused to participate in. They brought in a new director, Doug Campbell, to handle the reshoots, which are easy to spot in the final film because they look and feel completely different from the scenes they're spliced into. When it opened, The Stepfather 2 actually grossed slightly more than the first film did, earning $279,000 from 100 screens, compared to $260,000 for The Stepfather from 105 screens. But unlike the first film, which had some decent reviews when it opened, the sequel was a complete mess. 
to this day, it's still one of the few films to have a 0% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Then The Stepfather 2 would limp its way through theaters during the Christmas holiday season, ending its run with a $1.5 million gross. But it would be Miramax's final film of the decade that would dictate their course for at least the first part of the 1990s. Remember when I said earlier in the episode that Harvey Weinstein met with the producers of another British movie while in London for Scandal? We're at that film now, and it's a film you probably... My Left Foot. By November of 1988, actor Daniel Day-Lewis had starred in several movies, including James Ivory's A Room with a View and Philip Kaufman's The Unbearable Lightness of Being. He'd even been the lead in a major Hollywood studio film, Pat O'Connor's Stars and Bars, a very good film that unfortunately got caught up in the brouhaha over the exit of the studio head who greenlit the film, David Putnam. My Left Foot's director Jim Sheridan had never directed a movie before. He had become involved in stage productions during his time at the University College in Dublin in the late 1960s, where he worked with future filmmaker Neil Jordan, and had spent nearly a decade after graduating doing stage work in Ireland and Canada, before settling in New York City in the early 1980s. Shortly after arriving, Sheridan would go to New York University's Titch School of the Arts, where one of his classmates was Spike Lee, and returned to Ireland after graduating. He was nearly 40, married with two preteen daughters, and he needed to make a statement with his first film. He would find that story in the autobiography of Irish writer and painter Christy Brown, whose spirit and creativity could not be contained by his severe cerebral palsy. Along with Irish actor and writer Shay Connaughton, Sheridan wrote a screenplay that could be a powerhouse film made on a very tight budget of less than a million dollars. Daniel Day-Lewis was sent a copy of the script in the hopes that he would be intrigued enough to take almost no money to play a physically demanding role. Day-Lewis read the opening pages, which had the adult Christy Brown putting a record on a record player and dropping the needle onto the record with his left foot, and thought to himself it would be impossible to film. That intrigued him, and he signed on. But during the filming of the movie in January and February of 1989, most of the scenes were shot using mirrors, as Daniel Day-Lewis couldn't do the scenes with his left foot. He could do them with his right foot, hence the mirrors. As a method actor, Daniel Day-Lewis remained in character as Christy Brown for the entire two-month shoot, from costume fittings and makeup in the morning to getting the actor on set to moving him around between shots. There were crew members assigned to assist the actor as if they were Christy Brown's caretakers themselves, including feeding him during breaks in shooting. A rumor debunked by the actor years later said that he had broken two ribs during production because of how hunched he needed to be in his crude prop wheelchair to properly play the character. The actor had done a lot of prep work to play the role, including spending time at the Sandy Mount School Clinic, where the young Christy Brown got his education, and much of his performance was molded on the young people he worked with. While Miramax had acquired the distribution rights of the film before it went into production, and those funds went into the production of the film, the film was not produced by Miramax, nor were the Weinsteins given any kind of executive producer credit as they were able to get themselves on Scandal. 
My Left Foot would make its world premiere at the Montreal World Film Festival on September 4, 1989, followed soon thereafter by screenings at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 13th, and the New York Film Festival on September 23rd. Across the board, critics and audiences were in love with this movie, with Daniel Day-Lewis's performance specifically. Jim Sheridan would receive a special prize at the Montreal World Film Festival for his direction, and Daniel Day-Lewis would win the festival's award for Best Actor. However, as the film played the festival circuit, another name would start to pop up. Brenda Fricker, a little-known Irish actor who played Christy Brown's supportive but long-suffering mother Bridget, would pile up as many positive notices and awards as Day-Lewis. Although there was no Best Supporting Actress award at the Montreal World Film Festival, the judges felt her performance was so deserving of some kind of attention, they created a special mention of the jury award to honor her. Now, some online sources will tell you the film made its world premiere in Dublin, Ireland on February 24, 1989, based on a passage in a biography about Daniel Day-Lewis. But that would be impossible as the film was still being in production for two more days and wasn't even fully edited or scored by then. I'm not sure when it first opened in the United Kingdom other than sometime in early 1990, but My Left Foot would have its commercial theater debut in America on November 10th, when it opened at the Lincoln Plaza Cinemas in New York City and the Century City 14 in Los Angeles. Sheila Benson of the Los Angeles Times would, in the very opening paragraph of a review, Note that one shouldn't see my left foot for some kind of moral uplift or spiritual merit badge, but because of their pure love of great movie making. Vincent Camby's review in the New York Times spent most of his words praising Day Lewis and Sheridan for making a film that is polite and non judgmental. Interestingly, Miramax went with an ad campaign that completely excluded any explanation of who Christy Brown was or why the film was titled that way. 70% of the ad space is taken with pull quotes from many of the top critics of the day, 20% with the title of the film, and 10% with a picture of Daniel Day-Lewis, clean-shaven and full-tooth smile, which I don't recall happening once in the movie, next to an obviously added-in picture of one of his co-stars that is more camera-friendly than Brenda Fricker or Fiona Shaw. Whatever reasons people went to see the film, they flocked to the two theaters playing it that weekend. Its $20,582 per screen average would be second only to Kenneth Branagh's Henry V, which had opened two days earlier, and had earned slightly more than $1,000 per screen than My Left Foot. In week two, My Left Foot would gross another $35,133 from those two theaters, and it would overtake Henry V for the highest per screen average. In week three, Thanksgiving weekend, both Henry V and My Left Foot saw a double-digit increase in grosses, despite not adding any theaters, and the latter film would hold on to the highest per-screen average again, although the difference this time was only $302. And this would continue for weeks. In the film's sixth week of release, it would get a boost in attention by being awarded Best Film of the Year by the New York's Film Critics Circle. Daniel Day-Lewis would be named Best Actor that week by both the New York Film Critics and the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, while Fricker would win the Best Supporting Actress Award from the latter group. But even then, Miramax refused to budge on expanding the film until its seventh week of release, Christmas weekend, when My Left Foot finally moved into cities like Chicago and San Francisco. 
it's $135,000 gross that weekend was good, but it was starting to lose ground to the other Oscar hopefuls like Born on the Fourth of July, Driving Miss Daisy, Enemies a Love Story, and Glory. And even though the film continued to rack up award win after award win, nomination after nomination, from the Golden Globes and the Writers Guild and the National Society of Film Critics and the National Board of Review, Miramax still held firm on not expanding the film into more than 100 theaters nationwide until its 16th week of release, February 16, 1990, two days after the announcement of the nominations for the 62nd Annual Academy Awards. While Daniel Day-Lewis's nomination for Best Actor was virtually assured and Brenda Ficker was practically a given, the film would pick up three other nominations, including surprise nominations for Best Picture and Best Director. Jim Sheridan and his co-writer Shane Connaughton would also get picked for Best Adapted Screenplay. And as I mentioned before, Miramax also picked up a nomination for Best Original Screenplay for Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and a Best Foreign Language Film nod for the Italian movie Cinema Paradiso, which, thanks to the specific rules of that category, a film could get nominated before actually opening in theaters in America, which Miramax would rush to do with Paradiso the week after the nomination was announced. The 62nd Academy Awards ceremony would be best remembered today as being the first Oscar show to be hosted by Billy Crystal, and for being considerably better than the previous year's ceremony, a mess of a show best remembered as being the one with the 12-minute opening musical segment that included Rob Lowe singing Proud Mary to an actress playing Snow White, and another nine-minute musical segment featuring a slew of expected future Oscar winners that, to date, featured exactly zero Oscar nominees, both which rank amongst the worst things that have ever happened to the Oscar Awards show. The ceremony, held on March 26th, would see My Left Foot win two awards, Best Actor and Best Supporting Actress, as well as Cinema Paradiso for Best Foreign Film. The following weekend, March 30th, would see Miramax expand My Left Foot to 510 screens, its widest point of release, and see the film make the national top 10 and earn more than $1 million for its one and only time during its eight-month run. The film would lose steam pretty quickly after its post-win bump, but it would eke out a modest run that ended with $14.75 million in ticket sales just in the United States. It's not bad for a little Irish movie with no major stars that cost less than a million dollars. Of course, the early 90s would see Miramax fly to unimagined heights. In all of the 80s, Miramax released 39 movies. They would release 30 alone in 1991. They would release the first movies from directors like Jean-Pierre Junot, Quentin Tarantino, and Kevin Smith. They'd release some of the best films from some of the best filmmakers in the world, including Woody Allen, Pedro Almodovar, Robert Altman, Bernardo Bertolucci, Adam McGoyan, Stephen Frears, Peter Greenaway, Peter Jackson, Neil Jordan, Chen Kaige, Christoph Kieslowski, Lars von Trier, and Yang Yi Mao. In 1993, the Mexican dramedy like Water for Chocolate would become the highest-grossing foreign-language film ever released in America to that date, and it would play in some theaters, including my theater, the New Wilshire in Santa Monica, continuously for more than a year. If you've listened to the whole series on the 1980 movies of Miramax films, there are two things I hope you take away from it. First, 
I hope you discovered at least one film you hadn't heard of before and you might be interested in searching out. And the second is the reminder that neither Bob nor Harvey Weinstein will profit in any way if you give any of these movies talked about in this series a chance. They sold Miramax at Disney in June of 1993. They left Miramax in September 2005. And many of the contracts for the movies the company released in the 80s expired decades ago with the rights reverting back to their original producers, none of whom made any deals with the Weinsteins once they got their rights back. Harvey Weinstein is currently serving a 23-year prison sentence in upstate New York after being found guilty in 2020 of two sexual assaults. Once he completes that sentence, he'll be spending another 16 years in prison in California after he was convicted of three sexual assaults that happened in Los Angeles between 2004 and 2013. And if the 71-year-old makes it to 107 years old, he may have to serve time in England for two sexual assaults that happened in August of 1996. That case is still working its way through the British legal system. Bob Weinstein has kept a low profile since his brother's proclivities first became public knowledge in October 2017, although he would also be accused of sexual harassment by a showrunner for the brother's Spike TV aired adaptation of the Stephen King novel The Mist, several days after the bombshell articles came out about his brother. However, Bob's lawyer, the powerful attorney to the stars, Bert Fields, denied the allegations, and it appears nothing has occurred legally since the accusations were made. A few weeks after the start of the Me Too movement that sparked up in the aftermath of it, the accusations of his brother's actions, Bob Weinstein denied having any knowledge of the nearly 30 years of documented sexual abuse at the hands of his brother, but did allow to an interview for The Hollywood Reporter that he had barely spoken to Harvey over the previous five years, saying he could no longer tolerate Harvey's cheating, lying, and general attitude towards everyone. And with that, we conclude our journey with Miramax Films. While I'm sure Barb and Harvey will likely pop up again in future episodes, they'll be minor characters at best and will never have to focus on anything they ever did again. Thank you for joining us. Talk again soon when episode 119 is released. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, The 80s Movie Podcast, for extra materials about the movies we covered this episode. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.